when you when you spoke to the uh, to the prosecutors, right? They they were very compelling in what they were saying. Yeah. Right. They would say things like, "So this guy is claiming that the whole world conspired against him, and yeah. for that to be the case, it would have to be in the police." Yeah. And the judges were independent, and the prosecutors are independent, and the federal police, that's independent of the local police, and the federal judges, right? This massive conspiracy to get this one guy, right? Yes. And every single person there needs to be corrupt for the conspiracy to work. So you just think like, yeah, the story that the family is trying to present is absurd. And then you speak to the and family. Then you, the family, and they go, wait a second, so those guys, <laughs> are trying to say that this guy, who was the most famous guy in the Amazon, <laughs> yeah. had the highest rated show for 10 years running, who was the politician voted with the largest number of votes in Brazil proportionally three times consecutively. This guy, this superstar, probably the best well-known person in the Amazon, these guys are saying that he's hanging around, he, first of all, he's killing people to be on his TV show, so it's number one rated, when people die in the Amazon all the time, every day. Uh, and uh, he already had the, the number one TV show. Why would he be killing people? And also that he would be hanging around in the open with drug dealers, like this guy who's famous for being uh, uh, a crime fighter. It's insane. Mm. This week on Noticing the Obvious, I have a very special guest. He's an old friend who happens to be an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. His name is Danny Bogado. He's produced a ton of films for BBC, PBS and Netflix. His most recent high-profile project is Killer Ratings, which is the first original documentary series in a foreign language to be produced by Netflix. Danny has always been a talented storyteller, as long as I've known him. And here he talks about starting his career, getting this fascinating film made. He shares stories on what it's like to be a documentary filmmaker as opposed to a fictional filmmaker. And I also ask him his opinion on the power of media to influence the masses. So let's get to it. Here's Daniel Bogado. We met when we were both studying film. 16mm filmmaking. Yep. In South Thames College. South Thames College, yeah. That was in 2001. Yes. And we both, we finished. We, we made a film, each of us. They, yes. They, they, they were both terrible. They're really, <laughs> Hey, really speak for bad. yourself. I'll speak for myself. My film was <laughs> terrible. Really, really bad. I remember reading that... Orson Welles, and I'm not comparing myself to Orson Welles, I'm just saying Orson Welles started making a short film, which was so horrible that he never showed it to anybody else. And then Orson, um, Citizen Case was his actual real first film, and he actually had to learn quite a lot as he was making it. And Quentin has the same story, because he had his first, Quentin Tarantino had his oh, first. You just called him Quentin. Well, just between me and you, okay. though. Yeah, Q. Uh, QT, but yeah, he he has a similar story with his first film. Right? By the way, did I tell you that um, you know that I I, were, I did a series for Netflix uh, called Killer Ratings? Okay. Uh, did I tell you who's a big fan of it? Tell me. 
Brad Pitt. No. Brad Pitt. <laughs> How do you know? It's such a roundabout way. Like basically, Twitter just informs you of everything. So if you Google, yeah. if you put your the name of your work, you know, yeah. anytime there's news, it comes to you. And so what happened was that last year there was a, a Brazilian documentary uh, nominated for an Oscar, which was The Edge of Democracy, and. And you know, like that luncheon where they get all the everybody together. Sure. And so I think you know the director was like a, a a woman. She she went uh she went there as you know she had met up met Tarantino and Leonardo DiCaprio. When she met Brad Pitt, she was like, "Well, have you seen my documentary?" And and he was like, "No, but I watched this documentary called Killer Ratings, <laughs> and I thought it was great." Nice. And then. Like when that happened, we just kind of on the team, we just kind of send it to, you know, like we got the WhatsApp group mm. and we sent it to everybody. And we're like, I was, say, I was telling our editor, can you imagine that? Like we worked on this for two years mm. and Brad Pitt is there in his sofa watching it mm. and liking it. And so that was quite nice. All right. Well then let's, let's, let's try and close the gap. So um, from 2001 to killer ratings. So we, well, let me ask you first, like first question I usually ask when you, meet someone new and they ask what do you do how do you describe yourself well the short answer is i i make documentaries and uh and then uh it, it's like um it's interesting that one of the reasons uh that i kind of got into making documentaries i mean there's a number of reasons but one mm -hmm. of them was i thought if i go to you know like a, a social gathering and someone asks me what what do you do what would be an interesting thing to say? And I thought, well, you know, making documentaries. And so, so I committed myself to that. And now, not that I go to too many social gatherings anymore, but if I do, I'm not particularly keen to talk about what I do. <laughs> okay. So why yeah. are you not keen? Is it because of the myriad of questions that follow? It's sort of, yeah, it's, it's sort of... Um, it's a tricky one, you know, once you get into that, you know, it's a, it, you know, it's sort of, it is interesting, but yeah. suddenly you find yourself manipulating, uh, kind of dominating the conversation because yes. you say, uh, and, and, and it's not, you know, it, I don't feel comfortable. Like I feel like I'm an egomaniac. Because That's so I'm just, well put, man. That's so well, because when I was working in television, it was the same. I don't work in TV anymore, so I don't have as glamorous a job, but yeah, you, you don't want to dominate the conversation and you can't help. But as soon as you say what you do, that's all anyone wants to continue talking about. Yeah, I, I think with TV and film and things which are perceived, as you say, as glamorous. And then the, the worst thing, I mean, and then if somebody is kind of quite, because I, I quite like what I do and I'm quite mm. passionate about yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. And, and so if you meet somebody who also likes a lot what they do, whatever that may be, and are very yes. passionate, then you can have sort of, a conversation but the worst scenario is that you meet somebody who really dislikes what they do oh, and are not yes. happy with what they do and then you know and then you just don't know where to hide because they're yeah. kind of telling you that and uh and you know you're not going to kind of pretend that you don't like what you do yeah uh, yeah, yeah i mean it just depends so you don't lie because i i went lie. into a habit of actually lying like just not admitting that i do tv i direct tv or well, what say, was your lie what would you say I will say I work in media. Okay. Yeah. It's, that's a bit generic. I don't yeah. know. It sounds also a bit pompous and pretentious to think that your job is so great. I'm not yeah. saying that you are 
pompous and pretentious. I'm just saying, like, it's it's almost like you're a megalomaniac for thinking that, you know, what you're doing is so fascinating that you need to either avoid it or lie about it. I I mean, you know, it's just just tricky in general, isn't it? Other people, Mm -hmm. talking to other people, it's always tricky. Yep. (laughs) All right. So now the thing I've always, uh, I've been wanting to ask you for a long time, we were both uh, back in film school when we met, we were hardcore Tarantino fans and we both loved James Cameron. We we loved similar kind of films. We had our differences, but we also loved similar kind of films. And that was fiction and narrative and horror and action and kung fu. So I'm wondering where, because you never, back when I knew you, you never expressed interest in documentaries. So do you, remember, do you remember when did you... When did you get into it? What what first made you? Well, so so I, I mean, this is how I remember it, and I might be remembering it incorrectly because often we create narratives that are kind of explain how to we justify, go. Justify, yeah. Well, to, to just just to kind of create a little story and how accurate that story is, I, I, I have no idea. But the way I remembered it, we did that film course, and. Um, and kind of like it, it didn't really lead for me anywhere, and and it was interesting. But I felt that, the, uh, and I was reading a lot of books about filmmakers at that time as well. So I was reading, I was watching a lot of films, mm. and I was kind of reading a lot about filmmaking at that time. I, I didn't keep that habit, and then I got the feeling that everybody in that class, including you and me, mm. wanted to be the next Quentin Tarantino, mm. but had nothing to say. Had not mm. had not lived life, didn't have any experiences, and mm. anything that we did would just be pastiche, would just be a copy of a copy, an interpretation of an interpretation. And mm. I think, on the side, I think that's kind of a problem with films in Hollywood. They're just kind of made by people who watch a lot of films, mm. and you know how many people have things of substance to say. Uh, you know, well, not as many as, as as we would like, and so so I moved away from from that, and 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 I, I guess I spent a few years just doing retail jobs, just minimum wage jobs, with without much of a plan. Mm. And um, when I wanted to kind of get a, a job, I, I remember applying to a job for, to uh, Reuters, and um, the fact that I didn't have a degree seem to like people were like sorry where are you from and i would say from paraguay where's that um <laughs> south america and literally people would ask me can you read and write and I go, <laughs> yes and and um you know i would say i got a very high score on my sat and they go well, what's an sat and i go well mm. that's the american system oh, we don't have that here so like my whole education just counted for nothing so i was kind of a base level Mm. You know, I'm like a brown guy that speaks funny, yeah. plays me. But by not having a university degree, they kind of their first assumption is like, well, I'm just some, you know, brown <laughs> kid from some strange country who's probably ill-educated and ignorant. I mean, that, that, that was the, the gist of my first interviews, right? Yeah. And so I thought, well, I should get a degree and, and so, so I worked towards that I studied anthropology at uh, London School of Economics uh, yeah. for three years and then towards the end of that anthropology is actually really really interesting like it's it's um, you know it's the study of human beings in other cultures yeah and 
And what you realize is that, you know, so many things are just cultural constructs. But what was great about anthropology is that you kind of see how other societies organize themselves, see kind of the crazy shit that, you know, they believe. Like, we believe in crazy shit, and they also believe in crazy shit. We're just sort of not so aware that a lot of what we believe is just completely crazy. And um, we just kind of assume it. It's just natural. We just kind of uh, project our system of beliefs onto other cultures. But then kind of a, a, a discipline which is dedicated to just kind of seeing those other cultures is really fascinating. And what's really fascinating as well was some of the stories, like crazy, crazy stories um, of things that happen in other places, uh, in other societies, and, and that are considered, oh, that's the way we do things here. Uh, and I love those. I love the craziness of it. Mm. And so towards the end of my degree, when I started thinking, well, what could I, I do? That, that's actually when I was watching, I started watching many documentaries as well. Um, I think one of the first ones that, that kind of the impact was Bus 174, which is like a Brazilian documentary about a guy who holds a, a bus hostage and he became like a, a big piece of news and everybody was following it. And uh, I actually watched this show called Unreported World a lot, which, um, you know, they would send reporters into kind of the middle of nowhere, war zones, uh, you know, kind of dangerous places. And, and it was just kind of very immersive and, and just very, they were just very well made. Mm. And I thought, oh, I could get into that. I, I could, I could, I liked working on TV, but I didn't like doing things of substance. I liked, you know, I like films, I like stories, but I didn't really want to go down this kind of Hollywood style path. Mm. But this documentary stuff, I think, could be for me because you kind okay. of get everything from all worlds. You get something that's interesting, something that's of substance. You know, you get to travel. And at the same time, you're using your artistic talents, your artistic capacity, your, your storytelling abilities, uh, you know, your editing, your filming, all of that. And so when I started doing it, I realized, wow, this is just great. I mean, it's just a lot of fun. It's very exciting. Uh, you know, no days identical to the next one. And I often felt like it was um, kind of a, I just never understood. Like, for me, it's just like um, everybody, it's like, it's like one of the greatest jobs, I think. Like, like mm. um, at least it just was a very good fit for me. Uh, yep. You know, often I feel like, you know, that, that you, you're almost cheating by working on this because you have such a great time mm. while working on it. And up to that point before that, work had always been drudgery work had always been awful like awful like you know like <laughs> like I, I used to work on retail a lot so dealing with the public a lot yeah often treat you like you're nothing yeah uh or or you know bosses of my other members of staff there was just so much kind of hostility and just miserableness i'm not i'm not saying that if you work on retail that's the case i'm just saying that was my experience yeah. on the jobs that i have my mother works on retail and she's very happy and she's very good at it but that wasn't for me. And so um, when I started kind of working the documentaries, it, it, was just, it, it was just a very good fit. Now, let me ask you, you said you, you've, before you started the documentary journey, you felt like you didn't have anything of substance to say in terms of making movies and the rest of the class. Do you think, it's, do you think that's required? Do you think it's necessary to have something of something substantial to say to tell a, an entertaining story or is there such a thing as i don't know popcorn entertainment oh well i don't know i think um i think for me a lot of my favorite kind of popcorn films do have 
things of substance. I mean, of substance doesn't mean it has to be kind of, you know, serious and grim and depressing. Mm. Okay. Uh, and, and I think a lot of it is you do bring your own experiences to it. I, you know, I think if you look at, you know, who our favorite directors are, who, who are people who are always doing, you know, material of substance, I mean, you just kind of find them all very interesting people, right? And if you kind of read interviews, they seem, you know, very capable, but very intelligent as well. And, you know, and many of them, uh, I, I do think it's a problem when, I think, I think like when you, when you kind of read a bit about Hollywood, it is quite, uh, you know, like there'll be somebody who's the son of somebody else and that, that gets him into that world. And when you read interviews with people like that, you know, they kind of know movies inside out and they know the industry inside out. Mm. And it feels that, you know, the script that they're writing is sort of just a, a remix of films that they've seen before. And, and so, for instance, there are a lot of things that movies get wrong, um, you know, like CPR, you know, like the, the, the machine that, you know, where you've got the line going, toot, 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 and, and, <laughs> and then the person flatlines, and then they, you know, get, God damn it, God damn it, and they, they come back, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, with the machine. And we've seen that so many times in so okay. many films. But that's I get it, but wait, I have a question then. As a documentary maker, you're saying you don't believe in mm, shaping the facts for dramatic effect no uh, on the contrary i mean like the quentin tarantino in pulp fiction right the whole injecting with adrenaline stuff that's that's not real right, right. you'd kill somebody if you did that yeah but it, it was very original right he, he i think he got the idea talking to a friend yeah it was a, you know i hadn't seen that before on in a film yeah. and uh and the cpr thing is both wrong and very boring because we've seen it a million times before. So why are we seeing these things again and again and again? If you actually were in a situation where you had to learn how to do CPR, you did CPR on, on, on someone, or you know, if you were an ambulance driver for a while, or if you had some type of life experience, you would realize actually that's not how it works and how it works is more interesting or I could make it more okay. interesting. I could make reality more interesting. Yeah. And so time and again, we see kind of Hollywood tropes, you know, Hollywood shortcuts. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I think it's just people are just watching the same films and just kind of remaking them again and again. And that's why eventually it just becomes boring. Okay, so you're not against making reality more entertaining. You just believe that sometimes in Hollywood, the way they do it is not original. Yeah, you just kind of like how many times are you watching a film and you think, well, this is just essentially like that other film with a few different things, but it's essentially a remake of that film. And uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, for me, that's more boring to watching something that just feels completely original from beginning to end. Yeah. Okay, um, so moving from fiction to documentary, did you find, like, I'm really curious how, because in the world of fiction, the world, we create the world, right? We, we create the words that come out of the person's mouth. So moving into documentary, how much, I mean, in the, in the early days, did you feel like you lost control of your story? Like you're at the mercy of whatever happens, Right, you're not controlling it, or how much, how much control, or how much manipulation of the story can you do? 
Well, when you, it depends how you make the documentary. Um, if you do it through a TV channel, like say Channel 4, um, you go through a process where you first secure the money, right? So you, mm. so you get a commission. Mm. And to get that commission, you write a treatment. And in that treatment, you kind of say, this is what's going to happen in my documentary, more mm. or less. And that is based on research that you've done, right? So you, you won't be able to say, this is the exact same thing that will happen. I mean, I can give you an example. So... Um, um, the show that I, that I used to watch in Reporter World I eventually ended up working for it and I made a lot of um, kind of 25 minute films for it and, and you travel all around the world and you have to come up um, sometimes with the idea and so I found a photo essay of child boxers in Thailand right wow. and it was a very striking essay they were very young they were like 7, 8, 9, 10 year old boys uh, fighting like real you know real real fights mm. um why tie and i mm. thought okay i think there's a story here and then i read an article from the wall street journal and it was about how you know villages would get money together to um uh to, to have their kid champion fight against another mm. village and then whoever wins you know keeps all the money mm. uh, and there was tremendous pressure for these very young children you know mm. who, who also suffer brain damage from from the fight wow. so i thought okay well that's that's what story is that that's rocky kind of right it's, it's kind of like it's a young guy a young child tremendous pressure to win he's going to be training right and then comes the fight and mm. you know all, all this money a thousand dollars which is a lot of money over there will have been invested uh, it would be bet on that and then one mm. of the kids fights so that that was the treatment that was the treatment and i knew i would be able to find it because there were three thousand kind of or something like there were thousands of Muay Thai child fighters in Thailand. Mm. So you write the treatment based on the article, based on the research that you've done and the phone calls you've made, that I'm going to follow a kid who, who's going to be under a lot of pressure to deliver on this fight. And then we'll film the fight as well and we'll see the outcome. And so that, that will be the story. Mm. So the main thing is like, we need to be very clear about what we're searching for. And we had a few days to find it. We need to find a kid who's from a poor village, so, so the family doesn't have a lot of money, uh, who's a fighter, mm. and who's going to fight like uh, fight in, in the coming days, in, because we, we were only there for a few weeks, um, against another kid in our village, and a lot of money was going to be bet on this fight. And we had to find this. And we spent three days, and on the third day, we found it. We found exactly that. And then when we started following the story, uh, so the, the, the kids being um, trained, right? It, it's trained. it turns out that in addition to a bet about who was going to win the fight, the family had also, the, the two families had also made a bet about that the kid was going to weigh 25 kilos by the day of the fight, right? And, mm. and so if the kid didn't weigh that, then it was like a, a, a supplementary bet, right? And okay. so during those last three days, they spent... They were just doing crazy things to try to get the kid to lose weight. So they would put like this massive kind of um, um, hit suit on him and make him run back and forth oh in the middle of the gosh. house. Yeah, and then on the day he wasn't, he still wasn't that weight. And so the the guy who's his like manager locks him inside a car and kind of shuts it down so the sun, so he'll sweat, 
you know, so we would never have been able, and, and all of this is in the film, we would never have been able to imagine this, but that, that was the reality. And so that's what happens with, you know, if you're smart with good documentary making, is you want to find something that's true mm. as a concept, as a premise. And then you want to, when you go there, to, to be smart enough to find the right character in the right situation at the right moment that's going to, that by following them, it's going to deliver to you things that you cannot even imagine because that, mm. that, that's what happens in reality. Reality is always, always, if, if you look in the right places, far more insane than something that a Hollywood screenwriter would come up. And the mm. reason that is, is because um, like a lot of the stories that I've filmed, if you were to write them as a script, mm. people would it say that's, believable. that's too ludicrous. Yeah. And so when you're watching it for real and, and, and you know that it's real and you know that it's you know, insane, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, and when you're watching a film, sometimes you're watching a film that's based on a true story. The elements that look the most crazy, usually you don't trust that those elements are true, right? Yeah. So making a good documentary, it sounds like the recipe is just, it's all in the search. It's just finding the right character and then just let them do the thing. So the skill as a filmmaker is finding your perfect cast. Well, it depends on the type of documentary. So, you know, there's just so many different types of documentaries. So sometimes documentaries, yes, you just find a person or a group of people and you spend a lot of time with them. You know, there are filmmakers that spend years following somebody there might be other situations where it's more like, um, you know, if it's an investigation or if it's talking about an abstract subject like the corporation or, you know, Facebook or something like that, you, you know, you, you, you put the story through together through talking heads and, and a lot of the, you just put the story together a different way, right? I am always attracted because I quite like films. I always mm. was attracted to documentaries that you could imagine as a film, mm. i.e. a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And, and often, even on Unreported World, I would always think, you know, like the Thailand film, I think, well, this is Rocky, essentially, mm. right? And so just, just as a foundation for it, um, you know, how does it begin, what happens in the middle, and what happens in the end? And I, I just found, for me at least, that that was one of the most compelling ways of telling stories because you want to you want people to kind of be gripped and you want people to be always wondering what's going to happen next mm. and so sometimes even in documentaries you can have um, plot twists right like things that come out of nowhere mm. that are just in your mouth just drops and so I always I was always drawn to stories uh, rather than characters and, and and for stories you sort of need to have uh, a good knows about what makes a really good story and what doesn't and you have to be very very harsh i always think that a great story it, it just in one sentence it just grabs you mm-hmm. and you want to know more and you want to watch it so if you can't sum up your story in one powerful compelling sentence if your argument is like no you need to read this whole essay to understand why it's interesting Agreed. at least for me it wasn't something that i'd be interested in investigating later Okay, let's talk about killer ratings because that, that's probably the thing you're most well known for. Can you tell me 
how the killer ratings come about? Um, in 2009, so I had been doing documentaries for a few years by then. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard on the news the story about kind of a, a talk show host, a host of a TV program who was um, accused of organizing the crimes, of being behind the murders that he would then go and cover and be the first to get there, right? So, you know, and so it was all over the news for like one day. It was in The Guardian, it was in the BBC. It was like Mm. the joke story of the day. You know, you you get those international joke stories of the day. People found it very funny. And then then it kind of disappeared. Yeah. And then it's gone the next day. And I'm, you know, I made a note of it. Um, and my first assumption would be, I mean, first of all, this is a great, great idea for a documentary because first of all, you want to, it's just a very attention grabbing that somebody would do that. Second of all, because it's a TV show, it's visual. There would be episodes of the show that we could kind of review to see, you know, to investigate the mystery of these Mm -hmm. murders and whether he did it or not. Um, and, that, and that's one of the other key things that you need to think on documentaries. They need to be visual. It's a visual language, right? Um, a lot of subjects are probably better off as books than documentaries, right? If you want a great documentary, you need to think about what are we going to see. Mm. And, and, a, and, a, and a documentary is a story about a TV show. Well, you already have quite a lot to see, right? Or quite a lot to edit with. Um, and so I... The first thing I assumed after writing it down was that somebody else would make it next mm. year or the year after. Yeah. Um, that's what always happens, right? You, you hear of a great story or you it's, see something that's on the news and you just imagine, you know, a number it's of... It's taken, yeah. Yeah, and, and one of them, usually somebody who's, you know, famous and prominent gets it, you know, gets the commission. But a year passed and two years passed and then three and four and nobody had done anything on it. And I always kept it as like on my list of ideas as the number one. And, and then I started doing the research myself and I started kind of calling, trying, trying to find some of the key characters from, mm. from my flat in London and calling them. I speak a bit of Portuguese and trying, you know, but I, I was trying to advance the story, but it was difficult. It was difficult doing it from London, you know. And then in the year, I think 2016, uh, I was doing a documentary for the BBC, and I, I promised to myself that um, after I finished that documentary, I would head to Manaus, to the Amazon, wow. and I would investigate that story, because if I kept waiting, somebody else would do it, and I would just hate myself, because so much time had already passed. It had already been seven years, and what else was I waiting for? And you know the documentaries that I did had done up to that point were usually current affairs, so it, it was usually something that's sort of on the news, or that I could get money and I could get a commission mm. because um, I knew how to do that. Um, but current affairs, it has to be current, and this this is like an old story <laughs> that happened many years ago in Brazil in another language. Yeah. Who's gonna Who's gonna buy this? Who's it gonna be for? Right? Like um, I had a good relationship with Channel Four. And so I met, you know, we sent them a proposal and they were like, well, this is not for us. I mean, it's a great story, but you know, how, where are we going to get the money for this? Like channel four is for the British public. Right. Um, And so what we thought is, well, we'll try to, um, maybe it could be like a a film, like a feature length documentary film. 
But、mm. the first thing I needed to do was to figure out if the story was true, because often what happens is that you read about a sensational story like this, a lurid kind of sensational, very attention, and then you, you, you find the details and you find that actually it's nowhere near as sensational、mm. as it was originally sold. Yeah. Often,、uh, you know, newspapers will just. Reprint what they've heard from the wires, and the wires might just reprint what they heard from a local. And just、story. add a little exaggeration on the way. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's professional malpractice, but sometimes it's misunderstanding. I mean, there's all sorts of explanations, you know,、uh, why some 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 stories are lost in translation. But very very often they are, and I think one of the key things is you don't pay a big price if you get something wrong. On print, especially of an international story, you know what price do you pay? I mean, if it's quite a sensational story, you'll get a lot of clicks,、yep. and the correction might come weeks later if it does,、yep. right? And so, quite a lot of this,、uh, being serious editors of an reported world, we get a lot of these stories, and you find out often they're not、totally. exactly as they're presented. And so, on、uh, after I finished the Philippines film,、um, I went to Manaus, and、Without、I started no commission. You went on your own money. Well, what happened was I had been working very for five years. I've been working very closely with、uh, the company、um, Quicksilver Media, which produces Unreported World, and so I've been part of their orbit for five years. I started as an assistant producer, then I was a producer, then I was a series editor, and、um, I worked very closely with the exec there, the the, the person who runs the company, Eamon Matthews, and. Shortly after I was named series editor, we we're looking for stories. I said to him, "You know, one of the greatest stories I, I I know of. I don't think we can make it for Unreported World, but I'll just tell you." And I kind of gave him the pitch. You know, there's a guy who had a TV show and he was killing people to、mm. show them on his TV show for ratings. <laughs> and he just turned around and he said to me, "That is the greatest story I've ever heard." And like this is like a guy with five baftas, right? He's like, you know, he he knows his stuff.、Mm. And the next thing he said was, "Why don't we do it?" Um, but he, you know, he 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 was also as puzzled as myself of exactly how because it, it, we had already pitched it to Channel Four. So when I said to him, "I'm planning to go to Manaus, no matter what, you know, in in two months to to research this and see whether it's a story," he said he would、um, invest, he would fund that trip. Okay.、Uh, and so on January two thousand seventeen, I think it was.、Um, Uh, I went there, and I started speaking to you know the police. I started speaking to journalists. I started speaking to all sorts of characters. Nice. At the same time,、uh, trying to find out you know can we get the episode,、uh, the TV show? Can we get all the episodes? Can we track them down? Can we get the legal case? You know what can we get? Can we get all the press reports? So it was one month of just investigating, and so the first thing I found was、um, that the story wasn't settled. Right. So you would go to one group of people. And they would say, "Oh, the guy was so guilty. The amount of evidence that was found against him was overwhelming." Where was、you、the、know? guy at that point? Oh, you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Is he, he in prison? He's, no, he's dead. Oh, he died. He you died. didn't say that part. Okay, he died. So, how long ago to... did he die before you started? He died whilst the case was happening. So he died in two thousand and ten. Okay. Spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen this. Maybe you should watch it, Tan. <laughs> I should. I, sh-、yeah. I will. I, anyway, I'm going to watch it if Brad Pitt.、Uh, if Brad Pitt endorses well, it. Well, there、I、you、mean. go. There you go. But sorry, continue. I mean, so obviously,、uh, me making it is not 
a powerful, <laughs> compelling enough force, but Brad Pitt liking it. No, I get that. I swear, I swear I get that. Um, so yeah, the story wasn't finished yet. People were saying, so you went one, to one group of one, people. And so they would say, and then the other group would say, no, this was just a whole conspiracy. These were all lies because his political enemies wanted to bring him down. Right? Right. And, and both sides were very compelling. And then I went to the... Um, um, kind of one of the newspapers, and I asked them, could you just give me all the news articles that you've written on the subject? And uh, there was like an editor who was very kindly, she, she had to do it manually, they didn't have a system to do it, uh, you know, <laughs> to just press enter. And so she, she, she did this massive favor, it took a few weeks, but she got, she, got, she got all the articles in one massive document. And so I went to the hotel and I sat down and I just kind of read it. And it, it read like a, almost like a thriller, or mm. like a like a novel mm-hmm. and you know you just put it chronologically and there would be just so many twists and turns to the story it was a bit like you know their oj simpson in in the not in brazil but in the amazon it okay. was like this huge story for them that every day or every other day had a, a real life plot twist which changed everything you thought up to that point <laughs> and so i realized not only was the story true like so the first thing i would ask people so, so they were accusing him of killing people for ratings is that is that true yes that's what he was accused for and he, uh, because that, that was very important for me i was just very fearful that actually they never really accused him of that or that 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 was just a embellishment no he was accused of that and so um yeah no so the, the Suddenly, the story not, not only is it, it's true, it's far bigger and crazier and more insane and more full of twists and turns that I, I could have ever imagined. And now the problem was that there was too much story. Too many <laughs> things happened over the two years. And right around that time, like I think right before I left, um, a week before I left, I had mentioned this story uh, to a reporter, Marcel Theroux, who's, uh, who's the brother of Louis Theroux. Uh, they, they both make documentaries. Yeah, I know. And, uh, uh, well, so I went with Marcel to India uh, uh, to make a documentary. And it was great. He's a, he, you know, he's a great guy. And I mentioned my story idea to him. And he mentioned it to his wife. And his wife works for this production company. And so she mentioned it to the exec there. And so a week before I'm about to leave, the exec, uh, Dinah Lord, calls me and she says, I've heard you've got this wonderful story. And I said, yeah, well, actually, I'm, I'm working with Eamon Matthews and I'm about to head out. And she said, I have a meeting with Netflix this Friday and we're pitching ideas. Would you like me to pitch your idea? And I said, well, as long as you can work with Eamon, because Eamon's the one who um, has, has, has funded this and I'm working with him on this story, she said, no, I'm sure we could. And it turns out they knew each other anyway. And Eamon was happy to because he didn't have the contact with Netflix yet. And so she went on that Friday. And, you know, of all the ideas, the only one they were interested was on killer ratings. Uh, they just loved it. And it worked really well because at, th- at that point, we didn't really know who was going to fund this. And so we had spent some time talking to people more from the kind of motion picture world, right? From the not, not to too many, but some people from, from that area about the possibility of making us a feature-length documentary. And then when Netflix co- came into the conversation, we were like, oh, no, that's, um, 
that's probably that's probably better. And net because Netflix, Brazil is their second largest market, and so um, and and growing. And so Netflix is trying to find powerful original content of Brazilian stories in Portuguese. And the, what for us was once a big problem that everybody speaks in Portuguese, everything is in Portuguese in this story, for them was a big benefit because they're trying to kind of enter markets all around the world and, and, and they want content that works for the people in those countries. And so it was just everything came together at the right time and place. And, uh, you know, and, and we just had meetings with Netflix and I just told them the problem was that we just had too much story. And they said, well, why don't you do a series instead of doing just a one-off? Mm. And the moment they said that, I was like, yeah, of course, that's what we should do. And then I took the story and I split it up into seven episodes. And every episode finishes with a plot twist, like a real-life plot twist. Yeah. Uh, we actually had more. We, we had to. We had more real life plot twists that we could include in the series. There, there were some subplots that had to be dropped because the story just became too big and confusing. And so that that was one of the biggest challenges, uh, just trying to make everything clear. Because like the guy was accused of fifteen murders, and they were all very complicated. Every single one of them had like its own complicated story. Um, yeah, so that that's how, that's how it happened. And then once Netflix got involved, um, you know, I think we were meeting them. We, we, we cut a trailer, showed it to them. They mm. were, you know, they were very excited with that. I think we met them first in March, April. We were in pre-production by October. Nice. Now that sounds like a case where it was ready made for you because it was so juicy and so exciting. All right. So how do you find like when when it's a story that's not ready made for you how do you stop yourself from manipulating it like influencing what people say and pushing them to do something you know will you know bring a, a reaction that you want for the story well i just work very hard never to be in that position um so it's from day one you make sure that you do, like the, the, the kids right. in Thailand, you, you said that yeah. you were looking for three days to find the perfect kid. During those yeah. three days before you found the perfect kid, were you tempted to, okay, we can use this kid, but, you know, maybe maybe we need to dramatize it a little bit more. We need to exaggerate the action. No, no, never. Um, no, I, I think, like, if you ever find yourself in that situation, something has gone fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and you're in a lot. You're in a lot of trouble if you find that you need to manipulate something, or you need. It's just it's immoral, I think. So totally. it's not something that. But I, like I, when I, I watch, I don't know X Factor, and I see. Yeah, I know this is a bad example. Is that is that's that a completely different? Well, yeah, it's an entertainment show. So, but aren't um, you making documentaries for entertainment? Well, I wouldn't say they're entertainment the way X Factor is entertainment. I mean, like with X Factor, I don't have. You know, they go all the kind of the sob stories and they go, you know, I don't have an expectation that all of that is 100% true and 100% accurate. I'm sure it's based on real stuff. But, you know, for them, the main thing is entertain. And with a documentary maker, I think your first commitment is to the truth. It has to be. Uh, because you're working on nonfiction. If you're more interested in fiction, then you should just go and make fiction films. It, 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 it's just, uh, it's as simple as that. And so 
in unreported world, the, the way, you know, I, because I was there five years, I, I worked on hundreds of stories, um, either as a producer or as a series director or, or just in different capacities. And the way the system works over there is you, you, um, you, it's a series, right? And so you hire in advance the filmmakers, the, the directors, right? They get booked in advance mm. before knowing what their story is, right? It's like, I'm a producer, director. I'm going to like, I don't know if with Hollyoaks, it was like that when, when you were directing for them, mm-hmm. what are you just got booked and then you get, here's the script. Well, over there, it's like you get booked in advance and all you need to know is that you're going to go somewhere around the world and you go about um, two weeks to pre-production, three weeks of, of filming and then three weeks of editing. It's, it's a quick turnaround, two months. And it could be anywhere in the world. Now, obviously, if you don't have experience of being in war zones, we're not going to send you to a war zone. If you don't want to go to a war zone, we're not going to send you there. We would only send somebody who has experience and wants to go there. But in general, like all the producer directors need to be able to do different type of films because they might, you know, they, they, we don't know in advance what film they'll be doing. And so you're just kind of, um, there's a team looking for ideas, right? And so there's like, a, you know, assistant producers and researchers and interns. And their job is to find ideas. And it's a very, it's the most difficult job there. It's more mm-hmm. difficult than making the films. It's more difficult than being series editor. Is being the assistant producer that has to find those story ideas. Yeah. Why is it so difficult? Because the series has by now been going on for 20 years, right? They don't like repeating themselves. So if something was done on the Mexican drugs world, they're not going to do it again. Okay. Uh, uh, they don't like doing stuff, you know, it's unreported world. So they don't like doing stuff that Vice just did last year. They, they want to be at the forefront. And often they are. Like they were the first, they were the first people to send uh, a foreign team into Syria at the mm. beginning of the Arab Spring. Uh, we were the first, one of the first crews to be in Sierra Leone during the Ebola epidemic. Mm. Um, and so we are often at the forefront of, of stories. And and because because of that, and also as of recent, we're kind of very focused on, on when, I, when I joined five years ago, it, it was more about finding the, a character who has a story and a narrative arc, right? It, it began very current affairs and it kind of moved more towards documentaries of where you tell a story. And so you, you have to find a story that has all those elements. You have to find a story yeah. that's fresh, that's new, that's yeah. different, that's original, that's striking. And that can provide you a character and that can be filmed in three weeks and that you can, you know, it's very, very, very difficult. Yeah. So it's about the research. It's about looking in the... Yeah. The stories are out there. It's just finding them. Um, And so that was always my philosophy. And so I I, I never struggled when I was series editor with the films that I got commissioned or with the films that I made. And when people ask me, how come you don't have issues in the edit. I said, well, I just make sure that the story is 100%. And that sometimes can be a bit painful. That sometimes can involve, can involve kind of saying to the series editor, I'm sorry, but I, I'm just not going to go. I'm just not going to do that. I know we're under a lot of pressure, but I'm not going to do that story. And, you know, it's awful, right? Like you sound like a prima donna. But, uh, but in the long run, it was better. In the long run, it was better to do that. Mm. And then just have two months where you're actually quite, enjoying what you're doing and so so for me it's very very crucial now obviously you might not always get it right you might sometimes kind of think this is great and then you go out there and it's not that great i mean everybody has their own radar and their Mm -hmm. own antenna 
and the people who have very, very sharp radars and very sharp antennas are, tend to be very successful in the industry, right? Uh, you're not going to get it right 100% of the time. And so that's why you do think of plan B, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a plan B in Thailand if we don't get this. But in, the plan B never involves we're going to manipulate, we're going to, no, it just involves, well, we're going to do this other thing instead. Yep, I like that. Uh, I know we're almost out of time and there's still so many things I want to ask you. And, you and you know, I appreciate you going into detail in all of these. Um, okay, fine. You don't manipulate. How about removing? Because I imagine you're shooting hours and hours of footage. So at some point, you're kind of, even though you haven't manipulated any events or situations or people to say anything they don't want to say, you're removing a lot of stuff. Right? Yes. You, you're so, choosing so, what doesn't go into the final story. Yes, yes. So, so that's true. And, and so basically, your guiding principle has to be, I'm going to try to be as fair as possible to all my contributors and, and as fair reflection of what actually happened when we were out there in the field as possible. Mm. And there will be some times where there are some things which are kind of gray areas sometimes, like, you know, that you could make an argument that the more fair representation would be A, mm. or you can make an argument that the more fair representation will be B, uh, of what you're going to focus on or select. Um, and in those cases, you know, you have a chat with your um, exec uh, or the series producer, and then also sometimes you might have a chat with the lawyer and you explain these are all the facts and we want to be accurate. So I find that certainly in, you know, in unreported world and in Channel 4, you know, people were really really paid attention to, to being factual and you know we we had meetings before we left with a lawyer and then the the lawyer would check the script you know and he would ask how, how do you know that well, you know where's the source for that bit of information and are we being fair to this person there and i love that i, I love that we had that and i mm. love that that was the kind of the organizing uh, principle and so when I, whenever i do find of filmmakers or no documentary makers who don't kind of have that same spirit of let's let's kind of use the truth as our guide i'm always a bit disappointed because i just think well maybe i can't trust everything that i see in their films and mm. and then therefore that makes watching their films you know um a less in, in, enjoyable experience um but but it, it is it is yeah it is complicated sometimes and, you know, you, you have to make decisions. And again, you, you just go uh, often by your instincts about what's right and by your own morality about what's fair. And also you, you put yourself in the position of uh, the person you're interviewing and you think, well, what from their perspective would be fair? Mm. And would that be fair from another person's perspective as well? So this happened a lot on killer ratings because on killer ratings, there were two sides of the story. There was mm. the, the guy who was accused and his family and his friends who said he was the victim of a conspiracy. Mm. And then there was like the cops and the prosecutors and the judges and the investigators who said, no, no, this, this guy was clearly guilty. We got him under overwhelming evidence. Mm. And originally, the whole, the, the idea of the original treatment was we're going to follow this kind of team of police and investigators as they bring down the most powerful and dangerous man in the Amazon. <laughs> but when we started, you know, when I went there and I started speaking to people and stuff, I realized that actually, at least from the perspective of the public, uh, there were a lot of doubts about whether he was guilty or not, or whether he was the victim of a conspiracy. 
And when we started researching this conspiracy, the kind of the main motivating factor behind the conspiracy, um, you sort of need to watch the series. We found that actually, you know, it was true. I mean, he was investigating, the guy was investigating this other guy who was very powerful mm -hmm. for a very serious crime. And the timing matched, you know, like he's doing the investigation and the next year, you know, this scandal emerges. So um, when we did the, when we went and spoke to people, I always was very clear with people that our first commitment was to the truth. And we were going to give both sides um, equal time to speak and to make their case. We're going to provide a platform from people on both sides. That's interesting. If, if your commitment is to the truth, how do you decide not to feature the side who you feel is telling the truth? How do you decide not to feature because them I, more? Okay, well, so... Did you have an like opinion that, before you started filming? Well, like at the very, very beginning of the project, we assumed he was guilty because it had been reported as fact mm. in all these newspapers that he was, he was just uh, taken as a, uh, you know, and, and, and his excuse of a political conspiracy against him was treated as something he's just saying, you know. And, uh, and then when we went there and we started investigating and looking at the legal papers and, and talking to the guy's lawyer and talking to the family, uh, like to so the son, Wallace's son, who's now like 20 something, hmm. he, um, when we started doing our research, research on the project, news leaked onto the Amazon, <clears throat> onto the press. And so they, you know, the news in the Amazon was, there's a documentary coming on the Wallace Sosa story and it's going to be made by Daniel Bulgado. <laughs> and uh, the son tweeted uh, at me and he, he was something, he, he was just full of swear words. No way. He was kind of like, yeah. What did he say? And then, I don't remember what it was, but it was like, it was just kind of like, he was very angry. But then he deleted He didn't want tweet. it made. He didn't want the documentary made. So that was the first tweet. Yeah. Like, um, you're, you're going to tarnish my father's reputation again, your right. vultures or something like that. But then he deleted that tweet. That tweet only lasted for a few minutes. Then he deleted it. And he sent me another tweet and said, what exactly are you planning to do? Are you <laughs> planning to tell the truth? Oh. And then I said to him, we're, the only thing we're interested is in the truth. Excellent. No interesting in anything else. Hmm. And so then we had a conversation on the phone and then he becomes a big character in the series. He, 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 he you know, he defends his father throughout the whole series. He, he was 15 years old when the scandal happened. Um, and he was the only one, uh, him and, and his aunt, all the other members of the family saw the documentary as very bad news for them. And, and they actually were actively trying to sabotage the documentary as we were there. We would interview somebody and, the, and, and like the brother would call and say, no, you shouldn't be speaking to them, sort of thing. Um, and so at the same time, we had the family and then we also had the cops and the detectives and the prosecutors. And with all these people, you build bridges. You become, you know, you don't become good friends, but you, mm. you are friendly towards them, right? And, and you're honest, you're just kind of saying, you know, this, this is what we're doing. This is, this is the plan for the city. That's why we need to interview you. Um, and so by the end of the series, when we were finishing, I was wondering a lot what all these people would make of it because we were kind of going to be telling Brazil and the world, this is what happened mm. in this story. And we were giving them a platform, you know, for both sides to, to, uh, as the events unfold. But obviously sometimes you just can't do that throughout. So you need to select 
you know, which bit from which person goes where. Mm. And, and I, you know, I was worried for some of the people. Like there was, um, there was a female um, um, TV director, a, a, a woman, and she kind of became, she, she directed the show, mm. the guy, and she became part of the scandal. And she was arrested and she was sent to prison where she was there for several months. And there she was let go. And she was very vulnerable, uh, like psychologically. She was profoundly traumatized by that experience. And, you know, she was very insistent of her innocence. Mm. Uh, and obviously the police are kind of saying, no, she, she knew she was part of this conspiracy. She was part of this criminal group. And because she was very vulnerable, you know, how she was going to be represented in this film would have repercussions in her life, potentially. Right? And, um, and so there's a question, well, do I think he was guilty? Do I think he was not? Well, the interesting thing about documentaries is that it's a team effort. You know, I sit down, I've got um, an editor next to me. I've got an exec. We've got the commissioning editors. we got, you know, uh, a showrunner. And so all of these things are discussed, you know. And, and in the... Uh, and yeah, people do have their personal opinions. And there, it, it was quite divided. It was sort of like half of the people were leaning towards absolutely conspiracy. This guy was set up mm. and half of the people were leaning towards, no, this guy, this guy was a crook. Mm. Uh, and, and, and in a way, what I wanted to, and, and it was similar to my experience when I went there for the first time and I would speak to one group of people, I would speak to another group of people. So my objective actually, I, I found it quite thrilling this kind of not knowing mm. right? i found it quite exhilarating and also there was just an strange experience that you feel like when you when you spoke to the uh to the prosecutors right they they were very compelling in what they were saying yeah right they would say things like so this guy is claiming that the whole world conspired against him and yeah. for that to be the case it would have to be in the police yeah. and the judges who are independent and the prosecutors who are independent and the federal police that's independent of the local police and the federal judges, right? This massive conspiracy to get this one guy, right? Yeah. And every single person there needs to be corrupt for the conspiracy to work. So you just think like, yeah, the story that the family is trying to present is absurd. And, and, and it was very convincing. The the family and they go wait a second so those guys are trying to say that this guy who was the most famous guy in the amazon <laughs> yeah had the highest rated show for 10 years running who was the politician voted with the largest number of votes in brazil proportionally three times consecutively this guy this superstar probably the best well-known person in the amazon these guys are saying that he's hanging around he, first of all he's killing people to be on his TV show, so it's the number one rated, when people die in the Amazon all the time, every day, uh, and uh, he already had the, the number one TV show, why would he be killing people? And also that he would be hanging around in the open with drug dealers, like this guy who's famous for being a, a crime fighter, it's insane. Mm. And you'd hear that, and that was also a very compelling argument. Mm. And so, and, and with the majority of facts surrounding the case, it was always like that. It was always like you could see it from one point of view or you could see it from another point of view. Mm. And so the main thing I wanted to recreate or uh, when I was putting together the series was that feeling 
of almost feeling like an idiot. <laughs> like, you don't know what's true. You don't know yeah. who to believe. You don't know who's right. And your head ends up sp- spinning. And that's one of the comments. Like people in Brazil, uh, you know, you go on Twitter to see what people have said. And most people really loved it. And one of the things they say, they, they finish watching the series and their head's spinning and they don't know what to believe, but they're not angry about it. Okay. Um, so you gave everybody yeah. a fair voice. Well, I, I hope I did. And when we when when we're about to finish the series, I um we were asking ourselves, what are the people in them, like the people we interviewed, and we're telling now their story, what are they gonna make of it? Because you know, they're gonna watch it on the first yeah, day. Yeah, and, yeah, and we're yeah. kind of telling them what and uh and I said, I bet they're all gonna like it. Yeah. Because it was 50-50, um, there are often bits where uh, you know the films making the case for Wallace, and there are other bits where the, ca- the films make the series making the case against Wallace. And I thought the family is just going to obsess with the bits where we're making the you know the they're going to hear them. what they want to hear. They're going to hear what everybody's going to hear what they want to hear, and that I think was the case for most people in the series. And it was a weird experience because I've got them all on WhatsApp, and so on the first day that it went out. I was uh, watching it as well to make sure that everything was fine. Yeah. And as 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 you know, as the running time for the uh, seven episodes goes by, I start getting messages <laughs> on WhatsApp from the characters I just watched. Yeah. Going, po- going so, great. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Go on. So I'm just I'm just uh, guessing. Like, so the parts when they came up, they would text and say. No, it was only it was only at the end. You know, they would just kind of go, "Oh, great, great job, really well done, amazing." Wow, that's good. And that, from and then, both sides. From both sides. The, 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 there was one, the main detective, he never texted me. I tried to get in touch with him. He, he, he just felt uh, that we didn't show all the evidence on the side of the prosecution. Oh. But, but it, it's literally impossible to show. Like, this is one of the things that you know, people criticize of true crime genre. Oh, they didn't show this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally, and I, need, I cannot emphasize this enough, literally impossible to show every piece of evidence because you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of legal documents hundreds and hundreds of interviews and so you 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 just need to make a decision of what is the most important stuff or what's the most fair stuff to show uh and like the stuff that he wanted us to include i'm pretty you know i'm 100 percent certain it wouldn't have made a difference on people's conclusions uh on the series um but the most interesting was the son uh, Willis, who participated and, um, you know, did the interview and, uh, and appears throughout the series. Because as I tell you, like, it's not only that some bits are more, uh, some episodes are more kind of from the perspective of the family and some episodes are more from the perspective of the cops. Mm. Uh, and so he started, so the first thing, the day before I called him and I said, um, uh, especially because he tweets a lot. And so before you tweet anything, uh, Willis, just uh, watch the whole thing. Watch <laughs> it from beginning to end, and then let's talk. But don't stop halfway through, because you can only understand the series when you watch the whole thing. Mm. And um, and so then the first text I get is like, this is, this is terrible. This is kind of very, being very unfair towards my brother. Mm. And I go... Uh, and also, my, my, my father's side's got no, no time to tell his side. And I said, Willis, the whole first episode is just from the perspective of your father. And he goes, I'm on episode two. 
And I go, you're, what? I was like halfway through episode two. And I said, Willis, watch the whole thing and then let's talk. Mm. And then so he did watch the whole thing. And then um, he, <laughs> I, get, I get like the dot, dot, dot on the WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah. Of it. I'm like, so going, waiting. Oh, I'm waiting. And it was just the loveliest message you can imagine. He just kind of said, um, for 10 years, I've had this huge weight pressing on my heart because of what happened with my father. And for the first time that I feel that you've told his story, I feel the, 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 yeah, the, the weight's gone. And yeah, that's, that, that was very, very nice. That's awesome, man. Really cool. Listen, we're almost out of time, but I still want to ask you, let me ask you one more thing. Uh, you can you can be short with it. Um, I'm going to ask you this last question. I think you, of all people, will be brave enough to answer this. You studied anthropology. You make, you love studying people. You make documentaries about super sensitive subjects. So, like, what is the answer? You know, as a creator, and you've admitted that media has the power to influence people. So being on the side of, the creator, people who produce media, we're all just trying to get clicks and we want people to react. How can we, where's it going to go from there? I mean, I don't know where it's going to go and I don't know what the solution is. I, I, I find it, I would be surprised if 20 years down the line, we're still talking about Twitter or Facebook, right? I mean, in the year 2000 and when when we when we met each other, yeah, Twitter didn't exist, no. Facebook didn't exist, uh, social media didn't exist, YouTube didn't exist. No, so all these things that kind of dominate the conversation now didn't exist a few years ago. But it's not going to go backwards. It's only going to go. Or do you think it's going to swing back? You know, like I don't, I don't know, but I just, I just think. I mean, I, I think obviously technologies, new technologies are quite key, right? So uh, a, a technology, uh, a platform like Twitter suddenly meant two things, that you had to say things and you had to say short in kind of uh, 140 characters. And suddenly people like, uh, you know, celebrities or whatever have had direct contact. You know, they, they say something and it's out there. And people can say something and organize revolutions and so forth through it i mean nobody could have foreseen this um what did end up happening is it made our our worst instincts worse right exacerbated problems of tribalism so the next technology is difficult to like what i would imagine is that 20 years from now we'll probably be debating the next technology but it's very difficult to predict what it will be and predict what the issues will be. I mean, there are a lot of people who are studying right now, you know, issues like the stuff about the deep, deep fakes, the stuff about privacy, right? Uh, uh, manipulating voters and, and, and so forth. Uh, I mean, I think in general, we it feels that right now we're in a very bad place, right? I, I do feel um, my memory, for instance, like we grew up as teens in the 1990s, right? Mm. And during that time, there was a sense, you know, they, somebody even wrote a book called The End of History. Mm. There was a sense that, you know, history had happened. Yep. And 
and it had finished with uh, the fall of communism. And now everybody had sort of agreed that racism is bad, that the right, that, that a government has to be kind of the right mixture between right and left, you know, more or less at the center to find a balance. And, uh, and you know, and th there was economic prosperity and, uh, in the UK and in the US. And everybody would just be continue being happier, and the doctrine of democracy and capitalism would just keep expanding. That, that, that was the ideas that people, that people had in the 1990s. And at the very least, you know, that, those might have been wrong. You know, there might have been profound problems we we're not thinking or discussing. But at the very least, it was different living in a world where you're not constantly thinking that you're almost in a post-apocalyptic landscape yeah. like today. So my sense, if I had to guess what's going to happen, I think that it, things do oscillate. And that if you look throughout history about what's happening on the 20s and then what happened in the 30s and, and you know, what happened in the 50s and then what happened in the 60s, you do notice a pendulum going back and forth. And I do think people are quite exhausted of constantly having to think about, you know, the political realm. But that's where I mean, that's uh, my point. Way. Like all of that is, isn't that all exaggerated by the media? Because what I'm saying is, you you said, yeah, well, you know, we're all making way less money than our parents, but I, nobody, I don't, I don't believe people are complaining about that. We're, nobody's hungry. All right, world hunger is at an all time low. Homelessness is at an all time low. Nobody's really suffering physically. Now we're just suffering mentally. No, I think that's uh, wrong. I mean, people do go hungry. People go hungry in the UK. Sure, uh, but what I'm saying is might... less than previous. The, that problem yeah. is at its lowest right now in terms of urgency. Um, I think the issue... I can tell you a story which illustrates for me the issue. Um, I went, went to Tanzania to make a film, a documentary film, about older women who were being killed. And the older women were being killed because they were being accused of being witches. Mm. So we went there and we were filming for about a week, right? And, and the, the problem was real. I mean, women were being killed left, right, and center in really scary numbers. And... Um, but the, the, the paradox was that the people that we met were the most incredible, nicest, kind of kindest, polite, uh, you know, they, they would just welcome us into their homes. They wanted to feed us. They were just really, really nice. And it was difficult to think all these wonderful, kind, nice people that we're meeting are of the same communities that are killing they're older women accusing them of being, being witches and kind of chopping them down with machetes. Hmm. How can you explain that? And um, at one point I thought, well, let's have like a group of, um, uh, like a discussion in the village and we put up a fire. And then there was like this group of young men who came and they all started talking. And that's when I realized what the problem was. Um, because this, uh, so, so when, Somebody like an older woman, usually she has lost her husband. She's alone, perhaps she, her, her, her children are not with her. They're in another village. But she has like a, you know, she has a bit of a farmland and she has a, a little house. You know, 
if that woman gets killed, maybe somebody then can, you know, there's a there's an economic incentive, right? Mm. And these guys, these young guys, they were very unhappy because they could, um, they were very unhappy with their own station in life. There was a lot of unemployment. Um, and whilst if you, if you probably compare them with their parents or grandparents, they definitely had far more in terms of uh, wealth mm. and, and just life expectancy and access. You know, they had far more than, without doubt, mm. than the previous generation did. They could see, you know, the stuff that people had in the capital. They could see that on TV. They mm. could see wealth. They could see the wealth of the people who work for the UN, right, uh, for, for NGOs. They could see wealth all around them. But they couldn't access it, so it was all. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, you're making was, exactly my point. All, it was all relative, and so when you say people are not going hungry, like right now, we have the highest levels of inequality that we've had in something like a hundred years. Hmm. So the people, the rich people, have a concentration of wealth, uh, you know, which is huge. I mean, like, like it's it's almost impossible. To make clear how much the one percent or the point one percent have compared to like like I don't know if you've seen the graphics they are pretty shocking the distribution well and people sense that and when people haven't had a, a real like the wages haven't increased in real time in decades uh, and they, they are worse off now I mean I, I do think you are probably uh, speaking from a position of re- relative privilege no that's compared. Imp- yeah, but all right, I'm talking about total, for example, global poverty. You, the, you know, you cannot argue that global po- poverty has decreased yes. greatly year over year, year on year. So generally, humanity is better off. Yes. So that's but all that, I'm that, saying. That's not, but the that, point, that's not the perception. Sure, exactly. You, you, you judge by, you know, like if I were to take a crappy ten phone that's worth ten pounds mm. and that's ten years old and doesn't have any technology, mm. and I send it back two thousand years, right? And it's called this. Uh, that would become the most precious sure. item in all the world, and all the leaders of the world, will, you know, would fight wars to get access to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas today, you can just find it on anywhere for a pound and you probably not be that interested in it even though it has more computational capacity yeah. than you know the computers that sent uh man to uh, man to the moon in 1969 right so it's all relative it's like, all yes, relative so okay. you're talking relatively today i want to be if i'm not as rich as bill gates i have the right to be mad i don't think anybody wants to be rich as bill gates people just want to feel that they're progressing in life that they're earning more than they did, that their children's future will be more yeah. successful. But that's not happening right now. And that, that, that used to be happening decades back. That doesn't happen anymore. Okay, People, cool. Well, then let me, let me rephrase the, the question that I asked, which is, as media creators, do you, feel, do you not feel the need to tell that story, but in a positive way, things that we need to do instead of just trying to, you know, provoke and raise tensions, which I feel the media does a lot. Yeah, but I can only speak for myself. Like, I don't think any of the films I've made, the intention was to provoke or raise tensions. Yeah. I'm only interested in 
in finding great stories yeah and telling those great stories and along the way if you feel you know if you learn something about a particular place and time or if you gain through the characters and through the events a deeper understanding of humanity uh, or, or you have a type of experience watching that like if the film makes you cry or the film makes you laugh that's what i'm interested in um and so often you know when there's stuff that's political that's pitched i always just say well what's the story um you know i i, I sometimes think like in terms of politics um you know politics is important uh it has it's just so important to our lives but in terms of storytelling they are loggerheads and the worst thing that you can do, uh, you know, there, there are films which are quote-unquote political. And I think you can very quickly figure out whether they're good or they're awful. And most of them, I think, are awful. And they're awful, and I'm talking about Hollywood films, if at the halfway point, one of the characters kind of starts speaking what essentially is a speech. <laughs> and that speech is essentially what the screenwriter, who usually is liberal, believes. And uh, it's not necessarily that I even disagree with what's being there. I'm just saying that it's just awful because it's just kind of pretentious and overbearing. So any film that does that, you know, you just go, oh, God. And so I always think find a great, great story and then, you know, make your point through that story. And all the best documentaries are always doing that. Mm. There's always a story, a person you can relate to, events that you're following, something that grips you, and usually a narrative arc, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then if through that, you are able to kind of learn quite a lot. Cool. All right. So last thing, uh, you've told me what you're working on right now, but you also told me I'm not allowed to say. So what can you tell us about any future projects coming up? Um, okay, uh, so, so I'm working on a documentary series. I've been working for it for one year, so it'll be out next year. Okay, uh, and we're trying. So it's it's the it's the opposite of Killer Ratings. Killer Ratings was um, a very obscure story, mm -hmm. like it kind of happened and it disappeared and nobody remembered it. So we had to figure out everything we you know there was no mm. book written about it we had to figure out the whole story ourselves so this is the opposite yeah. this is a very well-known story uh but we want to do something very like a, a new approach with it kind of telling it a different way and you know we, we started doing some viewings of early episodes and it's gone really well people wow. are just feeling that we got something um very very special uh but the fact is you just never no, you know, you can work very hard on something and people think, oh, that's brilliant. And then it goes out there and it just doesn't capture people's imagination. You just, people don't talk about it. Mm. And then you can work on something that you think is good, mm. but then it goes out and, it, you know, it becomes viral or everybody talks about it. And it's very difficult to predict sure. how something will go out once it's in the way. So all you can do is just, you know, do your best work as hard as you can and kind of think, well, I would like to watch it. I, I like what I'm watching and kind of in a way do it for yourself and then hope that when other people watch it, they kind of feel the same way cool. that you do. Well, it's a very sensitive subject and subjects that I'm also very close to. So yeah, I look forward to seeing it. Is it going to be a feature or a series? 
So it's a, it's a series. Okay. It's a six-part series. Uh, it looks like at the moment. Um, but yeah, no, it's been going well. It's been going well uh, so far. Cool. But obviously, with the pandemic, that that's affected a bit um, the filming. Um, but but I think we'll be fine. Awesome. Thank you, Danny. It's always super cool talking with you. I miss talking to you. We should do Thank this you, more Tom. often. I, I miss talking to you as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, when when are you coming back to the UK? Whenever you invite me. Oh, whenever you want. Well, not now because there's a pandemic. Okay. But after that. All right. That was Danny Bogado. You can see more of his work on bogado.co.uk. That's B-O-G-A-D-O.co.uk. That's it from me. I'm Tan Lei. Thank you for listening. Please go to noticingtheobvious.com to check out more episodes and I will see you next time.